Thanks for joining the Heights Church podcast today. We hope that you enjoy the message. If you're in the Sydney area, be sure to join us at the Heights Church at Golston Road, Hornsby Heights, Sydney, Australia. We've been going through a, a series called God Is. We've looked at God is love, God is trustworthy, and this week we're looking at God is holy. And so Suzanne's going to read God's word for us now. There's two readings, uh, but Suzanne's going to give the first, and that's from Exodus. So have out your Bibles or have a look on the screen. Morning, church. So the first reading comes from... Uh, The book of Exodus, chapter 33, beginning at verse 18 and going through to verse 23. Then Moses said, Now show me your glory. And the Lord said, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you, and I will proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. But he said, You cannot see my face. For no one may see my face and see me and live. Then the Lord said, There is a place near me where you may stand on a rock. When my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft in the rock and cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will remove my hand and you will see my back, but my face must not be seen. This is the word of the Lord. The Bible reading today is from Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 to 8. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord, high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphim, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying, and they were calling to one another. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, I cried. I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips and I have lived among people of unclean lips and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he'd taken with tongs from the altar. With it, he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And I said, Here I am, send me. We're now three weeks into our series on the attributes of God and each attribute has at the end of a sentence like God is and we had God is love and we had God is trustworthy. Now for both of those, we offered examples or outworkings of a particular character or attribute that God has revealed to us. For example, love is sacrificial and unconditional and love is seen by us through him sending his son to us, like as an outworking of that love. And God is trustworthy, that Chris brought to us last week. He can be trusted to be consistent in his character. And we see that in God's uh, honesty uh, and his reliability and his consistency uh, in our life. But when we get to God is holy, we're kind of at the end of our our vocab There's nothing else that can be added onto the word holy. There's nothing else that completes 
the sentence. In other words, you can't add anything to make it better. This is an attribute of God that makes it so difficult for us to understand and so difficult for me to preach on. Tim Keller defines it like this. He says, God's holiness is God's incomparable, transcendent perfection, which he brooks or accepts no rivals and he brooks no impurities. And what other authors have described as the dimension of the ineffable, which means the indescribable. So for 30 minutes, I'm going to try to attempt to describe the indescribable and to find illustrations that match the incomparable about the unrivaled, absolute unrivaled and the unequal perfection of God. No pressure here. Possibly this is why we have less theological understandings or explanations of God's holiness in the Bible rather than the experiences of God's people as they have been confronted by him or if they experienced and they've been transformed by the holiness as they met God. From Moses, as we had in our first reading from Suzanne, uh, being transformed to Isaiah being spiritually transformed and putting his hand up for mission at the end of it. We need a vision of that Isaiah had, a vision of actually who God is, a real encounter with God that changes our life forever. Because when Isaiah saw the Lord high and seated on the throne, lifted up, his life was never the same after that. He came face to face with the God of all glory, on his throne, high and lifted up, and for life for him was not the same. He came face to face with God's love, justice and judgment and grace. And that encounter changed his life, it changed Israel and changed our world. Such a vision of God's holiness will change you and me as individuals and here at the heights. So today I'm going to look at the enormity of God And secondly, what a real encounter with God looks like, what it feels like. And finally, is such an encounter with God possible? The first thing is the enormity of God. I don't know whether you've experienced, I'm going to embarrass Ty because he's sitting out the back, but I'm going to embarrass him. But he, he was a lightning photographer freak at one particular time. Anytime there was a storm, remotely coming in from the sea, up to Warrywood Headland we'd go. Now, I don't know whether you've seen Warrywood Headland, but you get up there and it's the highest point in the whole of the kind of northern beaches that looks out down to Palm Beach and across to the city. But the highest point means that you're probably going to get struck by lightning first if you actually get up there, right? And meantime, he's taking these time photography, lapse photography that comes in. It's absolutely beautiful when lightning's out to sea. I don't know whether you've experienced it or not, but it is magnificent. It is like the most beautiful picture that you've seen. We talked about the majesty that's going on. I didn't want to explain it to Andy because he's probably going to get up here and tell you and ruin my illustration. But they, the, that's, that's, that's what it is. It's just absolutely magnificent as you look at the lightning storm, as the lightning just lights up and, and shoots across the sky. It's fantastic. Until one has zero latency and smacks right next to you and you go, oh my goodness, it blows your mind. It makes you jump 4,000 foot in the sky and that zap 
of God's holiness as presented to us is meant to not say, isn't he beautiful? But it's meant to sit us bolt upright, to examine him in all his glory and to examine our life in all our sinfulness. And that's what our, this passage does for us today. But I mean, let's get real, really. Since God's holiness is incomparable, we're really not able to understand it all that much. And probably our view of God's holiness is quite small compared to what it really is, as in you look at God and you die. I say probably because there's probably some people in our congregation who do do have a, a mindset of God's holiness. But how do I begin to speak about his holiness? Firstly, holiness is not a moral description. Holiness is not saying that God is merely moral or pure. And sometimes we view it that way and even speak about it that way, like someone's holier than thou. Holiness at its basic level means that God is other, he's unequaled, he's unrivaled, he's unmatched, he's separate from us. And when the Bible says to the prophets, uh, through the prophets uh, to God, that there is no one like you, it's not poetry, it's not rhetoric. It literally means there was no one like God. He is holy, he is other, he's in a category all by himself. Often we think of God as, and we're prone to think of that because we're, kind of, we're humans and, and we're made in, 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 in our own image in some kind of way, that we, that we think that God's just a bigger version of us. We want to reduce God to someone slightly bigger than ourselves slightly stronger or more intelligent or more moral or, or a different, just a, an other version of us that's more pure. And in that way, our interaction with God, we can appeal to his good nature, his gracious heart and powerful hand that will provide for our inadequacies. A.W. Tozer in his book, The Knowledge of the Holy, says, what comes into our mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Individually and as a church, what we believe about God will be evident in how we worship, practice and how we do mission, both as individuals and as a church. If you want to go online to YouTube, you can have A.W. Tozer's book, The Knowledge of the Holy, uh, free online. If we think of God as powerful and distant but not relational, we will not experience God's grace and love and we'll be forever striving to somehow connect with him or get to know him. But if we think of God only as grace and love, we will not understand his justice and his judgment. And either side will be inadequate, an inadequate view of God. And it will be outworked in our practice and our worship and our mission. So in order to break our small box that we put him in and often put him in, I'll try to give you a sense through of his awesome holiness as we again look at these vivid and mysterious verses that we found in Isaiah. First of all, it's important that we have, uh, that we have these verses in its historical context. He starts off, verse 1, in the year King Uzziah died. Now, it's not just time stamping it, saying this is when I had the vision. In Australia, we elect, uh, elect, and we soon will elect a New South Wales um, government, um, but we, uh, we elect a party rather than a leader. And as, uh, what that means is that, 
That is, if someone resigns or someone's booted, which happens happened a lot just over the years past, a party just decides who the next party leader will be. Or even when the Queen died, the only thing that really changed in Australia is that we now have a different face of our $5 note. That's about it. But not Judah. See, Uzziah, until right at the end of his reign, was a good king, under, uh, out of a line of really bad kings. And under him, they prospered and were, bre- and were blessed by God. But in chapters 1 to 5 of Isaiah, we have darkness and gloom that they're now experiencing. They are freaking out as, as Assyria in the north are going to come down and smuck them. They're going to be written off. And they live in turbulent times, uncertain times. That's in the year that King Uzziah died. Isaiah saying, we're up the creek because Assyria is going to get us and we have no king to lead us. So in verse 2, we see the picture of God's holiness. Isaiah explains his vision. He said, I saw the Lord seated on the throne and the train of his robe filled the temple. We're not talking his robe. We're not talking him. We're talking there is nothing bigger than God who fills that temple. There is nothing bigger than God who is going to lead Judah to go through what they're going through and what they will go through. Wouldn't it be great, no matter what you're going through here this morning or what any of your family or your friends are going through, that they have a picture of the Lord seated on the throne so that everything in life becomes small compared to the one that is seated on high. Above him were seraphim, each had six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, with two they were flying, and one calling to another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, and the whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voices, verse 4, the, the doors, uh, doorposts and the threshold shook and the temple was filled with smoke. Now what, who are the seraphim? Well, there's these angelic creatures or other than creatures, they're called in Hebrew the burning ones. And they're in constant motion around his throne and they're perpetually singing, holy, holy, holy. I mean, we need to get the force of this, don't we? We need to get to, to totally understand this. That Isaiah gets this vision of God seated on the throne and he sees the king and this king is so spectacular that he has this undefined number of angelic beings who in one hand are dazzling in their splendour and on the other hand, scary as. These angelic creatures, and that means they're morally perfect. They have never thought a bad thought. They only live in perfect obedience to God. There is no sin in them. There is no darkness in them. There is no imperfection in them. And while we might have a picture of Hallmark cards with the little fuzzy angels and that flying around, there is nothing like that here. We get a picture of their power and their beauty and they sing and when they sing, buildings shake. Amazing, isn't it? When I sing, glass breaks. When Len sings, we all hear it. But when they sing, earthquakes happen. Not kind of sweet, docile little creatures here. They're creatures of 
a beauty that is scary, a perfection that will pierce you, and a power that shakes building, and yet they will not even look at the face of God. Because he is holy, because he is glorious, their wings, they cover their faces so they will not gaze on him. But there's more. They sing their praise, holy, holy, holy. Like I mentioned, holy is the end of our vocab. What else do you put on holy except you're holy, holy? We might say totally holy, but that means that there's probably versions of it or crazy holy or super holy. And we might emphasise it in certain ways uh, through formatting as we write it. So we put it in bold or we underline it or put it in italics or something like that. But Hebrew has it that you repeat it. So when something is emphasised, it's repeated. So he's holy, holy. But then in Isaiah, it does something that's never, never happened before in, in literature uh, at that time, that is holy, holy, holy. God is other, God is beyond. God defines any category that we might put him in. His perfection, his wisdom, his justice, his love in his innermost being. He is holy. And I hope we see that, that this God is bigger and more spectacular, yet more terrifying than probably we ever reckon. He is holy, holy, holy. So what does it look like when we encounter this holy God? If you find yourself in the presence of God, what does it feel like? In verse 5 we see Isaiah has the vision of a holy God. Now he's probably in the temple, we don't know that, but probably in the temple, but he actually sees this holy God. And because he sees this holy God, what does it say in Exodus that you can't see God unless you're going to die? He comes to the right conclusion as he looks upon God, I'm toast. Well, he doesn't say I'm toast or I'm stuffed. He says, woe to me. Woe to me for I am ruined. Quite literally, he he thought that he had it all together. He says, now I'm rattled to the core. I'm undone. I'm about to die. What happens when you encounter the presence of God? You're humbled. What Isaiah experiences here and what he's telling us in verse 5 is that he's humbled to the core. He feels exposed. He's undone. He's, he's out there for everything to see. Sometimes we kind of shade ourselves, don't we? I get out in the sun and, uh, and I'm just absolutely fried because I forgot to put uh, sunblock on or something like that. And I look in the rear vision mirror and I thought, oh, it doesn't look all that bad. You know, I'm a little crisp. I'm feeling, you know, like I can't touch very much. And then I get back and I go to the bathroom, which has full bright lights on, and I look at myself and think, oh, my goodness, I am fried. I'm cooked. When Isaiah gets into the presence of this holy, holy, holy God, he's staring into a light that is brighter than the sun. And the only possible conclusion that he can come to is, woe to me, for I am ruined. I'm undone. However, rather than look at God, there is a human temptation for us, isn't there, rather than looking at God and seeing his holiness, rather 
for us to look at others and compare ourselves to others. Maybe we conclude we, we feel fairly good about ourselves. We're put together. We go to church. We do the, we do the Christian thing. We're travelling okay. We're comparatively uh, in, in relationship, good relationship with others. I'm doing well. But then there's a story in the New Testament that illustrates uh, that we, I, I want to spend just a second on. It comes from Luke chapter 18. And Jesus is telling a parable and a parable about two men that go to the temple to pray. Now, why is he telling this parable? He's teaching this parable because there, there were some around him who were confident in their own righteousness. They looked down on everybody else, but they looked at themselves and they thought, we're doing okay, we're doing the, the temple thing, we're doing religion fairly well. So that's who Jesus is talking about, these self-righteous people. And Jesus tells them a story. He says he has two men who went to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee and on the other hand a tax collector. Now at the time the Pharisees were morally upright people. People who were respected in their society but the tax collectors weren't. That's the other person in, in, in the parable. The tax collectors were hated. The tax collectors were outsiders. They were someone that you weren't going to associate with. And these two men went to the temple to pray, a Pharisee and a tax collector, and the Pharisee stood by, the self, by himself and he prayed to God, thank you, I'm not like other people, like robbers and evildoers and adulterers and like the tax collector over there praying. I pray and I fast twice a week. We need to pause properly for a second, don't we? So here's what we see, this Pharisee that goes into the temple to pray or supposedly to pray. Actually, he's probably trying to praise himself, build his identity as a good person based on how he compares the other people in the room. And he says, God, thank you. I'm not like the person over there. I'm not like an adulterer. I'm not like a robber. On the other hand, I do what I'm required to from religion. Now, don't get us wrong, it's good that he's not a robber and it's good he's not an adulterer and it's good spiritual practice for, for, for fasting and tithing. But what this man is actually doing is he's trusting in those things. He's actually using those things to build an identity which he can look down on other people next to him. The man goes in the temple to pray, but what he's doing is rather than praising God and seeing God and seeing himself before God, who he is, he's not humbled at all. If we go back to verse 13 of that chapter in Luke, the tax collector stood at a distance. He beat his breast. He couldn't even look up. He humbled himself before God and said, I'm not even worthy to stand here. And Jesus says that person will go away righteous, not the, person, not the Pharisee. Because as he come before me, he came as he truly should. And that is humbled. And Isaiah just saw God in his holiness and he thought to himself, I am coming apart. I am undone. And he's humbled in the presence of God. He's actually starting to lack the ability for having self-confidence purely based on his own strengths, that he's actually seeing more clearly the face of God. And he says, woe to me, I'm ruined. I'm a man of unclean lips. 
and I dwell amongst the people of unclean lips. And what's he saying about lips? Well, he could be speaking about that, that he's a prophet, he's a God talker, a professional God talker, and he uses his lips to teach and preach to help people know God. And that's his greatest strength. And yet when he gets to it and gets in the presence of God, God reveals his underlying motives of his preaching. It could be that, but I don't think so. Because he lives amongst a world of unclean lips doesn't mean to say that every single person is a prophet and every single person is a teacher. What he's saying, I think, is that your mouth reveals your heart. As the saying goes, actions speak louder than words. Isaiah is saying his life and his trust in God do not match his confession. What does a real encounter with God look like? It's humbling and it's exposing and it strips you and me of our pride and it leaves us to say, have mercy on me, God, I'm a sinner. So here's the final part. How could he possibly stand in the presence of God and encounter God? How is it even possible? If we go back to Isaiah chapter 6 and you're looking it up, Isaiah has this glorious vision of his holiness, the seraphim doing their thing. Isaiah is humbled, he's exposed, he's feeling himself sinful, he's dark and broken, he has unclean lips. Then if we look at verse 5, he says, I'm ruined, I'm undone. My eyes have seen the glory of the Lord. And you go back to our first reading. When your eyes have seen the glory of, your, of the Lord, what happens? You die. You cannot look upon God and live. Kirk Patson says in his commentary, in Surprising Salvation, he puts it like this. The surprising thing for Isaiah is that he encountered the presence of God in his superlative holiness and lived. Because Isaiah knows the stories of the Old Testament. You can't see God and live. Because a human can't see God and live and can't exist in the presence of God and survive, well then somehow or other God has to mediate his presence. Unless, some, unless God does something that enables us to stand there, we cannot stand in his presence so God, for Moses, he hid him in the cleft of a rock and the shadow of God passed by him. That's the only way that he could experience the presence of God. But as we go down to our story in Isaiah chapter 6, I'm done, I'm ruined, I've just encountered my sinfulness, my darkness and the presence of the Holy One. What does it look like? How does Isaiah get from, whoa, I am sinful, to be even to be able to say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. One of the seraphim flew with a live coal in his hand. In other words, the coal that just came from the, a fire from the altar burning so brightly and so strongly that even the seraphim had, who are the burning ones, the fiery ones, needed to take tongs to grab it. And with it, they touched his mouth the area of Isaiah's confession, they touched his lips and your guilt is taken away, your sin is atoned for, we're told, atoned for, we're told. And what's happening here is the key for everything, for us sitting here and to understand the holiness of God, 
This is how you encounter a holy God. As we look at it, what's happening is the live coal that touched his lips has two images. One, the live coal comes from a fire and the fire in the Bible is always connected to God's wrath. God's wrath and judgment are functions of his love. I mean, you and I know we want justice. In fact, most of the TV shows we watch in, in the whole of the crime scene is about bringing justice to the world. We like to, to, that, that whatever wrongdoing is happening gets paid for in a right and proper way. And that's what happens here. God, who didn't deserve our sinfulness and didn't, was not owed any of our imperfection and our sin, is right in judging our sin against him. We want that. God of love does not allow sinfulness to go unpunished. So his wrath is poured out on sinfulness. But here's the rub. If in the presence of God, he's going to judge Isaiah's sin, it mean, and it means a, or it means an end for him unless something happens, it will mean an end for us as sinners too. Won't it? If we're sinners, well, then we will die too unless God does something to mediate his presence before us. And we learn what he's going to do right here. See, in this passage, on one hand, we have the fire of God's wrath on the altar. But what's it burning up? A sacrifice. See, in the temple, on the altar, was a sacrifice how somebody came into the presence of God, how as an imperfect, broken human being came into the presence of God, there's only one way that they could ever stand in God's presence and that is through a sacrifice. Something had to be sacrificed in their place in order for them to stand, something that covered them, something that cleansed them. So sinful humanity, as sinful humanity, with all our imperfections, how do we come into the presence of God and not be struck dead under his wrath? Because it comes with a sacrifice. And the altar with the coal coming to Isaiah symbolises both things. On one hand, we have the wrath of God, which must consume darkness and sin. And on the other hand, we have sacrifice with covers and forgives. And that, what Isaiah experiences at this moment, is the holiness and the glory and grace of God combined. He encounters a holy God who made provision to cover sin. And you might say, well, that's great for Isaiah, but what about me? See, what Isaiah saw was just a picture. What Isaiah was looking at was a pointer but we have come to the reality. In John 1, John looks and talks about how God came in the flesh to dwell amongst us. The holiness of God. We have seen the glory, the glory of the one and only. We have seen the holiness of Jesus. And then later on, as Jesus is walking towards him, he says, Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. 
God in person, in flesh, and the sacrifice of God all in one. What John saw was the penalty of your sin and of my sin dealt with on the cross as ungodliness and sin, my sin and your sin was burnt up under the sacrifice of the Lamb. In other words, Jesus is the coal that touches your lips. Jesus is the coal that touched Isaiah's lips. And the wrath of God judging sin and the grace of God in dying in your place. Jesus is the cleft of the rock that Moses hid in so that he would not be consumed. Jesus is how you encounter God and how I encounter God. And there is no other way because there's no other person who is both glorious and gracious, who is both holy and forgiving. He's the only way. So where do we get to in application? Well, if you look upon the holiness of God and you truly see him, then the right conclusion that you would come to is repentance. Woe to me. Woe is me. And I live amongst the people of, I'm a man of unclean lips and I live amongst the people of unclean lips, but my eyes have seen the glory of God. Is that you? No matter how many years you have seen, you have been at church, no matter how many times you have sat in services, we don't want to come away from this service to go, wasn't that a nice service? Now I'll go have morning tea. As we meet and we encounter God, we should fall flat on our face at the initial stages. But as we've been touched by the coal, the sacrifice of Jesus, our repentance should turn to what? Praise. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And our lives, our song, our words, our confession will match our actions or should start to as we become more like Christ. And we can sing with the angelic angels, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty because he's touched our lips and made us clean. Then Isaiah comes to a point which every person who has met Jesus and has met Jesus as that sacrifice on the altar and praised him and thanked him for forgiving you of your unworthiness and your sinfulness, God says, who's going to go into this world and tell this world about me, about my sacrifice, about my holiness? And Isaiah puts up his hand and says, Send me. Remember right back at our Vision Sunday, I was saying if as, we, as we look at the attributes of God, it, they will, when Miriam went down to the, to the river and, and Jehobed gave Moses and put, her, put him in the reeds, she didn't do it blind faith. She had faith in God. And we've looked at God and he's, Love, And we've looked at God and his trustworthiness. And this morning we looked at God very briefly. 
and his holiness. And like Isaiah, it's enabled us for mission. Not mission overseas, or maybe mission overseas, wherever God wants to send us. God says, who's going to tell? Who? Our family, our neighbours, our world, whoever God sends us to. Every person that comes into your presence, God is sending you to proclaim his good news, the good news of his holiness and the good news of his sacrifice and the good news that salvation is found in him so that at the end of the time we read in Revelation of the angels and those gathered around the throne and their seat, the ones seated on the throne, Jesus Christ. And what do the angels sing then? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And those who love Jesus, those who have repented from their sin, those who have accepted the coal that touched their lips will be amongst the throne that forever will sing holy, holy, holy to our Lord. Let's pray. Lord, help us not to go from this place unchanged. Help us to meet you afresh and you. And maybe for the first time we recognise that when we stand before you, unless you mediate your presence, we can't stand and live. But you, O oh Lord, took that sin, that disobedience, the lamb 